Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Summer is officially here, and for many of us, that means more time outside enjoying nature. Author and educator Mark Warren will join us and share best practices from his book, Secrets of the Forest, The Magic and Mystery of Plants and the Lore of Survival. And later this hour, we'll continue our celebration of National Pride Month with Philip Rafshoon and learn the history behind the month of June's connection to LGBTQ rights. But first, since 1987, throngs of costumed enthusiasts from every nook and cranny of pop culture fandom have gathered at DragonCon, the sprawling and genre-sweeping convention that takes place over Labor Day weekend in Atlanta. Last year, the convention had to be reinvented as a virtual-only experience, but DragonCon is returning this year to a live, in-person celebration. Dan Carroll is one of the directors of DragonCon, and he joins us now via Zoom. Dan, welcome to City Lights. Happy to be here, Kim. Dan, when DragonCon usually comes to town, the visual landscape of Atlanta seems to change immediately. Costumed heroes, villains, they roam the streets freely. And it's a very immersive experience, even for those who aren't attending the actual convention. So since many people are moving to our city, brand new people all the time, can you help paint a picture of what Atlanta has grown to expect from DragonCon? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Dragon Con is this incredible pop culture convention known throughout the world, but surely known within Atlanta for bringing together people who like things. Those things could be comic books, films, music. We have a film festival most years, and it's an opportunity for people to gather together to celebrate those things that might seem a little bit off in everyday life. But one of the things that's really amazing about DragCon is over the past 15 years, we have really taken off as a costuming mecca around the world as as one famous cosplayer once said and a cosplayer somebody who gets really into their costuming but as one cosplayer once said it's the place where everybody debuts their best costume of the year so folks from around the world come to show very often television or film accurate costumes and get together and just enjoy themselves for five days of just being able to express themselves and be who they want to be. I'm glad that you pointed that out. And I do want to talk about the costuming more in a second. But you bring up a good point that some people who aren't familiar with what cons are might have heard of Comic-Con and might not really understand the difference between something like Comic-Con and something like Dragon-Con. But I think what you point out is that Dragon-Con is all about the fans. Absolutely. Even though we bring on an average year over 100 celebrity guests and 300 other guests who are writers and astronauts and creators of all types, the real star of Dragon-Con is our attendee base because not only are they a giant family that welcomes anybody who comes, and our inclusion is something we're very proud of, they're also participating in something they don't get to do 
all the time. And that is exploring not just the costuming, but their friendship. And I myself have friends. I only get to see at Dragon Con, but you know, it's, it's a festival and a convention and it's for the fans and by the fans. And one thing that is so great is how we have been accepted. There was a time maybe when we were starting out in the 80s and 90s where being a fan and being somebody who just loves Star Wars to the point where, you know, you've got giant basement collections was considered a little bit odd. But nowadays, a lot of these folks, they're also attorneys, they're scientists, they're doctors. And they come from all walks of life. And the younger fans have grown up with the Marvel movies. They've grown up with video games on a regular basis being completely normal. And they have much more of a pride about their nerdiness. Absolutely. So you mentioned getting to see some friends that you only see once a year at Dragon Con and how many people travel to Atlanta for the convention. Can you talk about the impact on Atlanta's tourism industry? When we have a full convention, we are looking at impact in the high 70 million to 80 million to the city of Atlanta's economy over that weekend. Uh, And that involves people enjoying the restaurants and bars, people filling up our hotels. We have five host hotels in an average year, and we also have a wide variety of associated hotels. I think 19 is normally where we are. And those hotels can come all the way from Midtown all the way to the airport. So there's a lot of folks coming in. They're spending a lot of money. They're having a lot of fun. And they're contributing to the economy greatly. Yeah, no doubt. So let's just quickly give an overview of what happened last year. You had planned to have a live event, and it unfortunately got canceled, right? We did. We planned on a live event, and our estimates were showing that it would have been the largest Dragon Con ever. We were expecting over 90,000 attendees. And obviously, at the beginning of 2020, it became apparent that the pandemic was coming and then the pandemic was underway. We worked closely with the city, with the state, paying attention to the CDC and State Department of Health to make sure we were going to be able to present a safe event because following social guidelines that were in place at that time, we were not going to be able to have a fun event, it seemed. And it became clear that we were not going to be able to have a safe event. And the hard decision was made to go virtual. Now, our virtual show was very successful. We had over 600,000 individual views of our programming. Very proud of the staff that put that together. Now, we've had our own in-house TV team going on 20 years. And we had been doing a virtual show for those who had wanted to see panels they couldn't see before. And they wanted to attend DragonCon, but couldn't physically. So we took that legacy that we had and expanded it. And overall, it was a very successful event, but it just was not the same as being live. And so this year, you feel comfortable going back to a live show. Let's talk about what the differences may be from other years. This year is going to be different because we're expecting a much smaller show. We're anticipating a smaller guest list, but the guest list is building. And we're pretty excited about some of the announcements that we have coming up, which unfortunately I can't tell you (laughs) because I don't know, but they are coming up. We are going to be practicing all the safety guidelines that we have compiled and 30 days before the show we'll have the full playlist uh playbook rather we'll also have a playlist (laughs) the playbook will come out which will give the exact guidelines that we have decided upon because as we go week to week new guidance comes out from both the state and from the federal government and we want to make sure that we're maximizing the fun but also making sure everybody is going to be safe. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. COVID has been such a moving target, and it's really hard to know what's going to be happening 
more than a month out, sometimes more than a week out. So waiting till 30 days prior to create your handbook makes a lot of sense. But you did say that you're expecting a smaller show. Can you elaborate on what that means? Does that have anything to do with limiting the number of passes that are sold? That is absolutely one of the things we're considering. We're looking at other conventions that have occurred within the Southeast. We're looking at other events in Atlanta, how they're managing their participation, how they're managing their attendance levels. We're also taking into account the unique area of Dragon Con, which is we are in five hotels in downtown Atlanta. We're not in a convention center. So there are a number of things that have to be taken into account. And those factors are going to go into that final decisioning list. And we have been public that we have not taken attendance caps off the table. We're not expecting them, but we need to make sure we're doing what we can to keep everyone safe. I get that. But what you're saying is at some point, if it seems reasonable and following CDC guidelines, you might have to cut off sales. And that has to do with with what capacity everybody is safe with. So it could happen, um, but I should also point out it could happen anytime. We have had opportunities in the past few years where we've had to cut off daily pass sales. Yeah, I, I do remember that, that certain days we just think of it as, well, that day sold out. Yep. And that is both a good sign and a sign that we are continuing to grow. And also that we need to make sure that we work on our planning for future years. Uh, this year is a little bit different than anything we've encountered in the past, though. Sure. Well, one of the main things that everyday Atlantans associate with Dragon Con is the Beyond Amazing Parade. For those who are unfamiliar, you've got superheroes from every comic universe marching down Peachtree Street. There's always a platoon of Ghostbusters in full uniform with proton packs and vehicles, dozens and dozens and dozens of stormtroopers. It is a sight to behold. And I have heard that you are bringing the parade back this year. What is that going to look like? Well, we are planning on the parade. We are putting everything in place. We're working closely with the city, but we know that things can change. We are doing everything we can to restore the parade and make sure that the parade is an amazing thing that it always is. Last year, we couldn't hold a parade, so we held a virtual parade. Fun. And this year, we're really anticipating bringing a live parade down Peachtree Street one more time. Speaking of the virtual parade, and you mentioned the success of last year's virtual programming, were there any silver linings to that? Things that you hadn't incorporated before that you're looking forward to incorporating again now that you know virtual can be so successful? Oh, yes, indeed. The success of the virtual show has made us want to continue even more than we did uh, having that virtual presence. And that virtual is available for those people who are not able to attend. And for those people who are there, it's an option for them. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, and I'm talking to Dan Carroll, one of the directors of Atlanta's Dragon Con. Dan, is Dragon Con still a mostly volunteer-run production? We are. We are. We have very few actual uh, employees. Most of us are volunteers, and that's the way we started, and that's the way we've grown. And our first Dragon Con, we had 1,700 attendees. And the last year we had Dragon Con in person, we had 2,300 plus volunteers. Oh my gosh. And we are going 24 hours a day from middle of the day Thursday until late in the afternoon on Monday of Labor Day and everything in between. And we are actually allocated 2,500 slots and we actually fall short, but it's those volunteers. Myself, I started out volunteering at the help desk and was able to just fall in love with the event to the point where I wanted to be more involved, but I'm still a volunteer and I have a day job. Wow, that speaks so highly to the extent that people wanna be involved with Dragon Con. Considering COVID, though, was it more challenging than normal to find volunteers this year? 
I know some departments are still asking for volunteers, but for the most part, that has not been an issue overall. The areas where we have a larger presence, our, our safety department is looking for volunteers because volunteers are important for maintaining safety. But I know in my departments, we're anticipating a lower workload this year, but we're making sure we keep all those volunteers. If we run into a situation where we have overflow, we're going to make sure everybody who has volunteered in the past maintains their, their volunteer status because we know they're volunteering because they love Dragon Con. One thing that some people might not know about Dragon Con is you guys host a very large blood drive as part of the convention each year. Will that be able to happen this year? Absolutely. And uh, we are really excited about our blood drive. The largest convention-based blood drive of any blood drive in the world. Our last live show we had, you know what, I'm going to throw out a number that I don't have in front of me, so I'm going to be inaccurate, but we <laughs> set records. Right on. It's a very cool thing. And just visually walking around a convention floor and running into the blood drive and seeing Superman and Batman and every other hero you can imagine giving blood is really just a beautiful display. Oh, the, the blood drive's awesome. You know, if you come to Dragon Con, give a unit of blood and get yourself a t-shirt. It's definitely worthwhile. But did you know we also had a charity at Dragon Con each year? Let's talk about that. So who are you hooked up with this year? Well, again, life turns back to 2020 all the time. And we had chosen for 2020 Big Brothers Big Sisters nice. of Atlanta. It's a charity that is important to me because I was a big brother for a while. Aww. And my little just contacted me a couple of months ago. He's up in New York now doing real well for himself as an adult. And it, it was so great to hear from him. So I know this charity changes people's lives. So when the live show was postponed, we decided to bring forward the Big Brothers Big Sisters into Dragon Con 2021 as our charity and we are hoping to raise a lot of money and for every dollar up to a hundred thousand dollars we raise dragon con will match one dollar so if we raise ninety thousand dollars big brothers big sisters gets a hundred and eighty thousand and we're hoping to set that record every year and get the whole hundred thousand and match the whole hundred thousand that's fantastic. So we've touched on a few times how important costuming is to Dragon Con. But since we are an arts and culture show, I'm going to talk more about the costuming because it is so amazing. And you actually have contests. How many costume contests are there? I think now we're at six. Oh, my gosh. Well, the biggest one is the masquerade, which is an interesting event because it's not just a costume contest. The participants are judged based on how well they act out whatever their costume is. And one of the things that's great about it is how silly it can be, but yet how serious the next performer is. There's a kid section and it's always hosted by the amazing Eddie McClintock from Warehouse 13. Absolutely hilarious. And, and our own Tony Gowell do a great job hosting. They're so respectful to the customers, but still are able to have fun and make jokes. The other one is completely technical, completely based on the craftsmanship which has produced costumers who have gone on to other opportunities for television shows on sci-fi. And probably the most exciting new one is that every year DragonCon hosts an event at the Georgia Aquarium where we're welcomed with open arms. The aquarium is filled with costumers and there's a costume contest that again is judged by celebrities. And let me throw in one more that I wasn't expecting, and that is the hallway costume contest. Oh, I'm glad you're bringing that up. We have a set of folks to go through the convention taking pictures of costumers that may not 
feel comfortable going into a dedicated competition and we post the pictures and let voting occur and some really incredible finds. A few years back, a gentleman had a costume where he was dressed as a giant iron, like for an (laughs) ironing board. And in the middle, he had an arc reactor and he was Iron Man. You speak to the mashups. I've forgotten how many mashup costumes there are, like Hawaiian stormtroopers. Years later, and this may be 10 years ago, I still frequently think about the New Orleans Sailor Moon costumes, where they were Sailor Moon costumes, but for Mardi Gras. (laughs) Yeah, people are so incredibly creative and put so much time, effort, thought, and love into their craftsmanship of their costumes. And that brings me to a group of people who call themselves cosplay medics. Can you speak a little to that? No, I just became aware of them now. (laughs) So there are people who roam around Dragon Con with sewing kits and hot glue guns and any sort of repair element you could imagine with big signs on their back saying cosplay medic and anyone that ends up with a costume emergency and their wing is falling off or they need some adhesive for a tail... These people help them expecting nothing in return, and they often carry other things like they'll give you a breath mint or some hand sanitizer. They're just the most helpful folks I have ever seen at a convention. You know, let me clarify. I was aware of this group. I didn't know what they were called. So, But I want to throw that out. When, When I was a little kid, I grew up in the New York area, and I would go to the Bronx Zoo. And every time I went to the Bronx Zoo, I wanted to see everything at the Bronx Zoo. And invariably, if I saw 60%, I had a full day. That's always how I think about Dragon Con. So true. There's so much going on. It's so big. It's so wonderful. It's so fantastic. I'm always missing wonderful things. I'm one of the directors of Dragon Con. And I don't even get to see some of my favorite guests who I'm very excited to see just because other things are happening. And I always say, if you're, if you're coming to DragonCon, have a plan and then be ready to throw that plan out as soon as you start walking the floor. <laughs> that is really good advice. So aside from the costumes, there are a ton of other artistic elements to Dragon Con, including an actual fine art show and a comic and pop-up artist alley. And I saw within the art show this year, Greg Hildebrandt is going to be a guest. Is that right? Absolutely. And he and his brother have been mainstays in fantasy oil painting for decades now. I don't think I've ever met him. And he's on my list of people I'd like to meet this year. For the unfamiliar, can you give a little bit of Greg's history? I first discovered him with the works of Terry Brooks back in the days when Sword of Shannara was new, back in the late 70s, early 80s. And then both of their works, creating Coca-Cola fantasy calendars, was just phenomenal. Very famous as an illustrator for books, but also his work stands alone. And, And both him and his brother, their work stands alone. Just super excited to have him as part of our show this year. One of the things that I'm most proud of about DragonCon is the overwhelming success of our diversity track over the past few years. And what it celebrates is diversity in all aspects, whether it's developmental considerations, whether it's it's sex, race, gender, ability, any type of diversity that's in science fiction, fantasy, or any other speculative fiction is on the table, including rather honest discussions about diversity within the fan community, which is always something that DragonCon stands up for and defends. Yeah, that is a beautiful thing. I'm going to end on a fun note. Dan Carroll, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars, not all the way. Um, <laughs> I, I tend to break with the Star Wars community in a number of areas. I'm a bit of a rebel and a heretic. So, um, <laughs> but that's not the real question for me. The real question for me is DC or Marvel. What do you got? 
I got DC cartoons, Marvel movies, uh, comic books, almost exclusively Marvel, though I'm a big fan of Jeff Johnson, anything he's done over at DC. Dan Carroll, one of the directors and champions of Atlanta's Dragon Con. The convention is returning to a live, in-person event this year, and you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. This past weekend marked the official start to summer, and many of us are looking forward to spending more time outdoors surrounded by nature. Well, author and educator Mark Warren urges us to be mindful of the way that we interact with the natural world, and his book, Secrets of the Forest, The Magic and Mystery of Plants and the Lore of Survival gives carefully detailed and illustrated instructions on identifying plants and their uses. Warren talked with executive producer and host Lois Reitzes and shared some of the lessons he's learned from the forest. Yes, first I will say that the most fundamental study that a person can undertake to understand survival skills is to learn plants first. Because when you do that, you start learning about the geology because of where those certain plants prefer to grow. You learn about wildlife because you're gonna learn which animals are eating those plants. You're gonna see their tracks there. It's the foundation for everything that I teach. So with that said, in my teaching of plants with my students, I encourage them to look at plants as living beings, to not take them for granted, and to even approach them in a way like the Cherokees did. The place where I live now in the mountains of North Georgia was Cherokee land. So every plant that I see there, or virtually every plant, not including some of the invasives that have come in, those are plants that the Cherokees knew. Let me just mention to you how they approached a plant first. They had a ritual about it. They first went out empty-handed, without a harvesting tool, just to visit the plant. And when they found the proper one, they circled it a certain number of times. That number was one of their sacred numbers, number four. And then they would approach it from the south only. And then they would kneel down to the plant and touch it and speak to it. This sounds a little bit like pantheism or worshiping of plants, but it's basically like us saying grace before a meal. It was a way to put into motion a gratitude. So it was a ceremony. And by coming to it with empty hands, nothing is done rashly. You carefully select your plant. You don't over-harvest. Now, I'm not a Cherokee, so I don't follow that formula. But I do encourage my students to create their own formula, just as I have with mine. And what it does is it simply slows you down in how you approach the plant. It, it asks you then to treat the plant with care. Because as we know now, plants do have many nerve receptors that receive smells, receive sounds. Uh, plants can detect light. We're learning so much more about them even in our lifetime now, and there's much more to go. Mm-hmm. What is your approach to a plant? Well, I like to, I use part of the ceremony of kneeling with the plant and handling it. I like to listen to it by, I'm not talking about something magical here. I'm talking about what the leaves sound like when you actually ruffle them. And their smells, that's one of the most important ways to identify a plant is by its smell. And it's interesting that taking a part of a plant from the south like the Cherokees did actually has some scientific basis to it. 
For example, if you are going to take a, a ribbon of inner bark from a branch on a tree, and that's a great source of medicine for many trees, it's smart to do it from the south side because taken on a year's average, that's the side of the tree that gets the most sunlight. And therefore, that's the side of the tree least susceptible to fungal infection. I believe the Cherokees understood this instinctively, and that's why they chose the south side. It was a healthier side of the tree to take from. Mm. Why is it important to learn how to identify sassafras or to learn how to make a bark basket? Well, the identification process is an absolute must because you have to know the plant you're dealing with. You can't guess. A quick example, I remember back in the 70s, the leading mycologist in the nation ate the wrong mushroom and died. That speaks uh, a lot about the difficulty of studying mushrooms. But every year we hear about some child ingesting a poisonous plant and dying from it. And it's all because of not being familiar with plants, not knowing how to identify. Unfortunately, the world of nature has become more of a kind of a postcard backdrop for most people. And we're not as engaged with it on an intimate level. So the knowledge of plants is something that's being unfortunately lost. In addition to identifying the plants. What are other useful or essential survival skills that you teach? Well, I teach stalking, which is the art of approaching a wild animal while being undetected, which is a very athletic and uh, almost martial arts type discipline. I teach reading tracks, how to create fire without a match by friction, which kinds of wood you can use for that. That may be one of the best examples of knowing your identification. If you choose the wrong dead wood, you might, you might try it uh, for days and days and days to create fire with that, but you will never succeed because it's the wrong species of tree. Where did you learn these skills? I learned the fire tree make uh, the fire making trees by simply trial and error. It's been one of my great adventures to keep trying new species of trees to see which ones you can work with. I of course knew of some species that would work, you know, I'd read about some and uh, had started with those and then expanded to try to learn others in my area. So overall I've I've learned about two dozen trees in this area with which you can create fire. Have you always lived in the mountains? No, I haven't. I started off my life in College Park, just south of Atlanta. And then I, uh, when I got out of college, I moved into Atlanta and worked here for quite a few years. I was a naturalist for the Georgia Conservancy for uh, 12 years. And uh, I didn't know about the mountains until I was about 14 years old believe it or not. <laughs> Sounds like a sheltered life in College Park, but I guess it was. And when I met the mountains, that was it. I was smitten, and the rest of my life was making gradual moves closer and closer. And now that I've been up in there in the mountains for about 40-something years and uh, have no plans to change that. <laughs> I think it's easy to understand why you fell in love with the mountains. What have you observed in your teachings about how people change after a few hours or days in nature? That's a good question because uh, it's something that you don't see on a first visit. It takes several visits before a student might warm up to you enough to share that with you, what changed for them. And the answer to it is that the student steps from being a spectator of nature to being a participant. And what that breeds is an intimacy. For example, if a person in one of my classes prepares a food from a certain species of tree, from that day on, after having ingested part of that tree, that tree is literally, we can call it a friend of that person. It's an acquaintance at least. 
And every time that person encounters that tree in another place, that person sees a friend. There's a bond that's growing there. So you become more engaged in that complicated web of life that we call ecology by being one of the players instead of one of the observers. Hmm. You've talked about your students. We should mention your school is called Medicine Bow. What's the origin of the name? It may sound familiar to people uh, from Wyoming because there we have a town, Medicine Bow. That was the town that the Virginian, the novel, was uh, centered around. And there's a Medicine Bow River, uh, Medicine Bow Mountain Range, and the Medicine Bow National Forest. I took that name because it was an actual thing in Native American history. It was a literal bow that was made for ceremony only, never used for killing. And so it symbolizes for me education, sending out arrows. I think of the students who leave Medicine Bow as arrows, and they take with them not only a new intimacy with the forest, but the knowledge that they too can teach somewhere else. And so it becomes an exponential kind of learning experience. Author and educator Mark Warren talking with City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzes. Warren's book, Secrets of the Forest, The Magic and Mystery of Plants and the Lore of Survival, is available now. And you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Once known as the mayor of Midtown and currently the director of member engagement for the Midtown Alliance, Philip Rafshoon has a long history as an Atlanta activist. As we continue our celebration of National Pride Month, let's revisit his conversation with executive producer and host Lois Reitzes, where he explains why June is so deeply connected to LGBTQ plus rights. Well, June is the month that the Stonewall riots happened in. And Stonewall was kind of the kickoff for gay liberation. Uh, It happened in 1969. Uh, There was a bar, there still is, a bar in New York called Stonewall. And in June 1969, uh, there was a bar raid at the Stonewall Bar. And bar raids were very common back then in in gay and lesbian bars. It was not legal to congregate together. It was not legal to dance together. And when you went out to a bar or a club, you ran the risk of going to jail, being arrested, being locked up. And one night in June 1969, people had had it. And the police came in, raided the bar, and people protested and rioted. And the riots went on for days. And that was what many people refer to as the beginning of the modern gay rights movement. There is some controversy because many people believe that the coincidence of Judy Garland's funeral that day, June 28th, had something to do with the riots. Would you explain Judy Garland's link to the LGBTQ community? Well, Judy Garland was an icon in the LGBTQ community. Uh, She was a goddess, much as many have been over the years. Uh, Cher, Madonna, Lady Gaga. She had music and songs that spoke to gay people. And... If you went to a Judy Garland concert, it was kind of like the home base of the LGBTQ community, I guess the gay community at the time or the homosexual community at the time. So she was a pretty big star. And some people say that the reason people were so angry that night was because of her funeral and and the way she died and the stress that she lived through her life. And there's people that say it was just bound to happen. I mean, it was 1969. We had been through years of civil rights protests and women's liberation protests were happening. There was just a groundswell of activity that sooner or later, this was going to happen. Atlanta does have events during this month to honor Stonewall, but 
unlike New York and L.A., our Pride Parade and the main celebration Mm -hmm. take place in October. In October. Why? Well, it's a really good question and and something that people ask a lot. Uh, And and it's a sort of interesting story. Pride here started in, in 1970. And there'd be most years there was a parade. There was a festival in the park. It grew over the years. And as we got into the mid-2000s, like about 2005, the weather seemed to get very, very hot when we had it at, at the end of June. I mean, the end of June can be sweltering. And then for probably four years in a row, there were just torrential storms during the parade. And they would just come up out of nowhere. No matter when we had that pride parade, it would be stormy. But at the same time, we started going to a, into a drought. And so the city in 2008 closed Piedmont Park to festivals and said, you have to move to somewhere else. Everybody was out. The Dogwood Festival ended up in a parking lot at Lenox Square. Pride ended up at the Civic Center on July 4th because we couldn't get the regular weekend. And, and both of those events turned out to be just disasters as far as attendance and and fundraising. Sure. I mean, July 4th also has the Peachtree Road Race. Exactly. Exactly. So there was a lot going on. The next year, the Pride Committee said, we've got to get in the park. And the city said, okay, you can get in the park, but you have to come after festival season, which meant that the next year, the event was Halloween weekend, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ended up just being a horrible weekend for it because, likewise, Lois, it conflicted with a big holiday. And I might say a big gay holiday. Yes. Uh, so the following year, they had a, the Pride Committee had the opportunity to get back in the park. And it was decided that since it was so hot in June, they would try doing it in October. Oh. And the weather was spectacular. So it'd be hard-pressed to change. Now, look, they've got Pride celebrations all over the country. And there's some people that say, well, Atlanta was one of the first Pride celebrations. It should be the same weekend as New York. It should be the same weekend as San Francisco. But look, the joy and the business of Pride means that there's room for people who live in a place and people that visit a place. So we need to have some on different weekends. So it it seems to work well for Many people to have it in October. There's some that would prefer it in June, and I'm sure it will be debated for years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just like Judy Garland's exactly. Philip, what was your first Pride Parade like? My first Pride Parade was in 1990. I, I had been out since high school in a way, but coming out is a process. And I, I 1990, I had a lot of gay friends. Uh, I was not out at work, um, and I wasn't planning to go to the Pride Parade, but I opened up the AJC in the morning, and on the cover for the first time was a story about Pride, and my good friend Jay Shoemake was on the cover of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So I went to the parade and stood on the corner, actually right about Peachtree and 10th, And I was just petrified that I would get on the news or somebody from where I was working, I wasn't out at the time, at work, would see me. Was this when you were working at Georgia Tech? No, I went to Georgia Tech. I was working for NCR. For NCR. Which now is at Georgia Tech, basically. Uh, So I was was a little scared to be there. And friends of mine came up and screamed at me. They said, off of the sidewalk and into the street. And so I went along... I walked into the park and just the experience changed my life. That was a giant growth year for Pride. Uh, We went from, I think, a couple of thousand people to 5,000 people that year. The next year, there were 25,000 people there. And the year after that, the growth was just right upward, 50,000. By 1996, there were 100,000 people at Pride. You mentioned your first parade was in 1990, and that coming out was somewhat of a gradual process before that. With the late 80s being the height of the AIDS plague, I would think your family must have felt terrified. 
when you told them you were gay? How did they respond to your coming out? Well, it was a process for them. Uh, I came from a very progressive family, and I, I thought they would just embrace it with open arms, but they were scared as everybody else was about the possibility that lied ahead for me. Uh, but they, you know, it took them a little while, but they really stood up for me and made sure that uh, I knew what I was doing and supported me in any way that they could. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Philip Rafshoon. So Pride Parade started in 1970, the year after the Stonewall riots. But it wasn't until 2003 that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the homosexual conduct law. It was, it was illegal to have sex. Up until that point, yeah, it had been illegal for same-sex couples to express their love and Correct. sexuality. Correct. Um, all of this is so mind-boggling because it is so relatively recent. But what has been the impact from the court strike down that you can observe? From that particular court strike down, I think more people have been able to come out. I think more people have been able to feel comfortable being integrated into society when you don't feel that everything about your being is illegal, that you, you won't get arrested for living your life openly. Philip, you've lived in Atlanta since you were six. You owned a landmark space for Atlanta's LGBTQ community, Outright Bookstore and Coffee House, and also a, a neighborhood gathering place that many people who didn't live immediately nearby in Midtown were still proud of, just that it existed. When relatives would visit and we'd drive by, I would point out, with pride, yeah. if you will. That's great. We had, a, can you imagine, in the middle of one of the most conservative states in the country, we had probably the most visible LGBTQ business in the country with big plate glass windows that had rainbows on them and proudly said, gay and lesbian bookstore. And everybody that would drive up would see that. It made a statement. What changes have you observed in Atlanta's LGBTQ spaces? It's tougher to have LGBTQ spaces because people can get what they want on the internet and people don't go out as much in general, whether it's any type of retail or any type of nightclub uh, or any type of restaurant. It's, it's harder to get people out, but I think that people are getting a little tired of spending all their time on the internet and social media, and, and they are getting out more. There's, um, there was a club that closed Burkhart's under some controversial circumstances, and people said, well, there's, you know, there goes another one, but something's opened in its place already, and there's another bar that's open. So I think it's, it's dynamic what's happening, and it's a continuum, and you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen, but uh, we've had a few bars and clubs close over the years, Part is because people don't go out as much. Part is because of the price of real estate and the rent. So there's been some changes in the spaces. And I wonder, because until recently, people have felt safer being out and gathering in public without fear of ridicule or, heaven forbid, violence, that is there not as much of a need for safe spaces? Of course, clubs, bars, there, there's, for many, there are specific types of gathering places, but are we at a point where we still need safe spaces? It depends who you are. If you, if you are settled down, if you have a strong support system, if you have a lot of friends that you go to their homes and then maybe you don't need to go out. 
Uh, but for everybody who does, there's, there's tons more out there that don't. And we, we need spaces where, where people are comfortable. Uh, these days, it may not need to be an exclusive LGBTQ space, although it's awful nice to go to them when you feel like it. But places that are welcoming, places that support uh, the LGBTQ community are important. In my work with Midtown Alliance, uh, we don't focus on LGBTQ issues, but I do work with a lot of restaurants and retailers and, and clubs, and, and, and they, they always feel a need to welcome the LGBTQ community. Where do you think Atlanta stands in terms of support or maybe lack of support for its LGBTQ community? Well, I think we have a good support system, but we, 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 we have tremendous issues here. We have a, an enormous LGBTQ homeless youth situation, and that's, that's one of the most toughest issues to deal with. I'm, I know that the, uh, the city is, is working on it. The, the mayor has called an LGBTQ advisory board, uh, which I've been appointed to, and one of the top issues is homeless LGBTQ population in Atlanta. Yes, it's very sad. Mm -hmm. But it also seems that um, there has been a good bit of action on behalf of supporting those teens. There is. There's a great organization, Lost and Found Youth. They've really raised awareness over the past six, seven years from an issue that not a lot of people thought about. Uh, there's also Chris Kids, I think it's called Chris 180 now. So there are organizations working on it, but it, it, it needs more work. Philip Rafshoon and City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzis on the history of National Pride Month. Rafshoon's history of humanitarianism runs deep, and he's been honored with numerous awards over the years, including two Atlanta Phoenix Awards. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., GFB3, also known as muralist George Baker, tells us about his newest mural in Adair Park and the roots of his signature playful style. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Our producer is Summer Evans and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes. Follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or follow Lois on Twitter at Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.